When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome, everybody, to today's presentation on special issues of people who are homeless. This is a continuation of the class that we did last week, so it's a two-parter, but don't worry if you weren't there, you're not you're not going to be, you know, out, out in the cold. Today, we're going to explore the prevalence of homelessness for children and people with mental illness. Last week, we talked more in general. We'll discuss causes of homelessness, explore the relationship between homelessness and ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. We'll discuss how homeless impacts the HPA axis. You know how fond I am of that. Review areas to be screened, identify creative interventions, and identify resources to help people access needed service. Remember that behavior is communication. Most people do not choose to be homeless. There is a small subset of people who just throw up their hands and they, you know, say, screw convention. I want to live a nomadic life and not have to answer anybody. But that is the minority. The majority of people do not choose to be homeless. Um, so we need to be sensitive to that and ask, what is their behavior communicating? For some people, it may be communicating, it was more dangerous to stay in my house than it was to, you know, become homeless. For others, it may be communicating that they didn't have the skills they needed to, you know, gain, get gainful employment. For others who have mental illnesses, for example, it may be communicating that their illnesses are not being treated adequately. So, for whatever reason, um, they have become homeless. If somebody has paranoid schizophrenia, you know, they may have different reasons for becoming homeless than someone who has major depression. We're gonna, I'm going to give you some examples in a minute. 25% of people who are homeless have a severe and persistent mental illness. Now, that is a big number and a small number. It's a big number in the fact that, you know, almost 500,000 people are homeless on any given night, it is a small number when you consider that that means that 75% of the rest of the people who are homeless do not have a severe and persistent mental illness. They may have clinical depression. They may have adjustment disorder. They may be struggling with DSM diagnoses, but they don't have something that is severe and persistent. For example, usually the one we think of is schizophrenia. On any given night, approximately 15,000 
thousand people in families are living on the street. Now, remember, there's hundreds of thousands of people who are living on the street. But when we just look at families that are living together, that's approximately 15,000 people. These people are living on the street in a car, or in another place not meant for human habitation. That could be an abandoned building. You know, we're not talking necessarily, we're not not talking in this particular instance about people who are doubling up with someone else. So this is really referring to people who are unsheltered. Family shelters, when they exist, are often large houses where the entire family stays in one room. Now you can imagine with whatever caused the homelessness caused stress to begin with and then cramming everybody into a you know 12 by 12 room you can imagine the stress that people may experience there's no privacy or safe place for children to play and often boys over the age of 12 are not permitted now that struck me as a little odd but that's evidently what happened. The issue, you know, with children having a safe place to play, it's not that the other people in there are dangerous. It is, you know, a lot of times these houses are in areas where they don't have a yard. They don't have, you know, a swing set or, or anything where they can play. If families do not quickly find permanent housing, 40 to 50% of them will break up within five years. We know that family dissolution is connected, correlated with a lot of later mental health, physical health, and relationship issues for a lot of people, Um, and especially families that dissolve under these high-stress circumstances. In the 2016-2017 school year, now I know that's a little bit old, but that's the newest information I could find, 1.4 million students ages 6 to 18 experienced homelessness at some point within their primary school career. Most students experiencing homelessness were doubling up with other families. That's about 75%. So they weren't unsheltered. They were living with some other family, relatives, friends, somewhere. They're living on a couch, living in a guest room, something like that. Others, about 15%, were in shelters. About 7% were staying in hotels or motels. You know, there are some of those um, facilities that you can pay by the week or pay by the month. And then about 4% of them were unsheltered, and that's that 15,000 we talked about. There are a lot of different causes of family family homelessness, and a lot of it comes down to... um, a parent who is leaving a violent situation and taking the kids with him or her, or somebody or both people in the job or in, in the family lost their jobs and they couldn't afford to put a roof over their head. When we're talking about family homelessness, we're talking about at least one guardian, if not more than one guardian, and their children or, you know, a couple that is that the, they're leaving they're leaving a situation and living together so the causes of family homelessness can be a little bit different when compared to low income families children experience homelessness who experience homelessness have higher levels of emotional and behavioral problems well duh you know put children under stress and what happens children you know perceive stress from their surroundings. They perceive stress from their caregivers. So when their caregivers are stressed out, children tend to act out more because they're, they're picking up on that. 
And there are a lot of different explanations for why that happens. But we know that for the most part, when a person, when an adult, a caregiver gets stressed out, children perceive it and some will withdraw, some will, will act out, some will develop anxiety, some will develop depression, but we know it affects them. So these children are going to have higher levels of emotional and behavioral problems just because of stress. Now add on to that, maybe not feeling safe, not able to get enough quality sleep, um, being in an environment that is strange to them, having to change schools. There's a lot of stuff that can contribute to uh, mental health issues for children who are experiencing homelessness. No matter how hard their parents try to make it or caregivers try to make it as untraumatic as possible, there's going to be some trauma. Children experiencing homelessness also evidence more developmental delays. This is especially true of children who aren't able to get adequate quality sleep and to, do not have regular access to proper nutrition. During those formative years, 6 to 18 or younger to 18, uh, the brain is developing. The body re relies on and requires regular quality nutrition. And when it doesn't happen, it can contribute to developmental delays. We also have seen a correlation between things like major depression in children and developmental delays. If a child is not wanting to get out and play, if a child is not wanting to be a kid, wanting to experience, then they're, they're oftentimes going to miss out on a lot of, um, social emotional development, but they also may miss out on some physical development. If they are withdrawn and not going out to play, they're not figuring out how to work their body. They have an increased risk of serious health problems. This can be, you know, depending on where they are, if it's an unsheltered place, increased risk of ear infections and colds and viruses and E. coli and, you know, the whole list of things. If they are living in a sheltered condition, then some of the um, pathogens that are associated with unsheltered living may not be as prevalent, but we know, y'all know I preach this, as stress goes up, immunity goes down. So children are going to be more susceptible to a variety of different types of illnesses and can even start developing autoimmune issues at this age. Children are far more likely to be separated from their families when their family is homelessness or when their family is homeless. This is a big issue because a lot of families will resist seeking help, seeking resources because they're afraid as soon as they connect with their the system that the system is going to yank the children out and put them in foster care. And we need to figure out a way to avoid this issue, to help families stay together and help families reach out for help. Children who are experiencing homelessness are obviously often more school, school mobile. They may not be staying in the same school if, you know, the family is staying with Auntie Jane for a month and then Auntie Jane says, all right, you got to hit the bricks and they go stay with Uncle Bob and Uncle Bob lives in a different school district. There may be more transitions. It may not be month to month. It may be semester to semester or school year to school year, but that is really hard on children to, you know, just start to get established and then all of a sudden have the rug ripped out from under them. So I want you to look at some case examples and this is for, um, a variety of types of homelessness because I've heard too often that 
homelessness is the fault of the person that I could never become homeless. Very um, derogatory towards people who are homeless. And I want you to recognize the fact that it could be you. You know, we have a saying in, in addiction recovery there, but by the grace of God go I. And it could be you if all the, the stars aligned in the wrong way. So Jay, has paranoid schizophrenia discontinued his meds because of the side effects? Well, once he discontinued his meds, he was unable to work and he went, um, he became homeless or maybe he decided that it was too dangerous to live in the house and he became homeless. But now that his paranoid delusions have flourished, it's more difficult to get him back on his medication because he is so fearful that you're trying to poison him or hurt him. Jack got divorced and could barely afford housing and child support when his car died, which he needed to get to work because he lived in a town with no public transportation. Again, the stars aligned. He got divorced, moved out, you know, was barely making ends meet. And then all of a sudden his car dies. He loses his job and he loses his house. June and her infant were kicked out of the house by her parents after she gave birth. You know, maybe June was an unwed mother or you know, whatever the reasons are. Selena and Carl, two grownups, were doing okay until Carl was laid off from his $20 an hour job and all he could find was a minimum wage job. We know that a lot of people spend at least 50% of their monthly income on rent or house, housing of some sort. And that is not good. It should be closer to 25 to 30%. But because minimum wage is low and housing costs are high, unfortunately, this does happen. So when Carl is bebopping along getting $20 an hour and all of a sudden he's only making $750, they have difficulty. They can't make their housing payment. Um, Jennifer and her daughter were abandoned by her daughter's dad. Jennifer couldn't pay the rent on her own. And unfortunately, the Section 8 list was closed for the year. Remember, we talked last week about the fact that Section 8 housing, public housing, is available. But in a lot of places, there is way more demand than there is housing. So people may want to get on that list. But in a lot of locales, it only opens for, you know, a couple of weeks every year for people to get on the list. And if you miss that window you may not get on the list at all. Even if you do get on the list, it doesn't guarantee housing. Sally and her daughter left a violent situation. You know, it was what it was. And, you know, Sally made the decision that it was safer to leave. You know, maybe they're living with Aunt June, but they're still classified as homeless. And should Aunt June kick them to the curb and they, not, and they don't have any other resources, then they could become homeless and unsheltered. Tina had a car accident and now suffers excruciating chronic pain and is unable to work. She applied for social security disability and is on her third appeal. You've worked with people who've applied for SSDI. You know how challenging it can be for people to get SSDI, even with legit medical diagnosis. John ran away from home due to abuse. He has had to be creative to survive because he is male. And because he doesn't have children in his custody, he doesn't qualify for a lot of programs. 
He doesn't qualify for Medicaid or temporary aid to needy families. He's clinically depressed and shame keeps him from asking for help. He's, because of the abuse, whatever, he doesn't want to put himself out there to people and, and ask for any sort of help. And, and there's, he doesn't, can't afford it anyway. John was driving home after having dinner with friends. His blood alcohol was 0.09. In most places, 0.08 is the legal limit. He got in an accident. They arrested him for DUI. He lost his job. He lost his house. Bobby and Buck's teenage son got into legal trouble. They took a second mortgage out on their house to pay the attorney fees. But soon after this happened, Buck got cancer and couldn't work. So they couldn't pay the attorney fees. They couldn't pay the second mortgage. They lost their house. Those were just some examples of cases that, you know, either I've worked with or I, I know colleagues who have worked with. It is for a lot of people, remember, more than 78% of people live paycheck to paycheck. So more than 78% of people are at risk of being homeless on any given month or any given quarter if their landlord is especially forgiving. We need to recognize this. And instead of thinking, looking at people who are homeless and thinking that they are um, mentally ill, thinking that they are, they, they must be substance abusers. They must be this. We need to look at them with compassion and say to ourselves, I wonder what happened that caused this person to have to live in this situation or to have to continue to live in this situation. Remember behavior is communication and that behavior sometimes tells me that they don't know how to access the resources that they need. So homelessness and ACEs or adverse childhood experiences. Basically, you can boil all the adverse childhood experiences down into three main groups. Abuse or neglect, physical, sexual, emotional. And this means even unintentional abuse or neglect. A lot of times when families become homeless, stress goes up, parental mental health goes down, and they become less able to be emotionally responsive to their young person. They become less able to make sure that the young person is getting all of the stuff they need, medical care, nutrition, and even sometimes, you know, a roof of, over their head. You know, sometimes these families are unsheltered, living in cars. Caregivers are doing the best they can, but a lot of these things can be classified as neglect. And I, I read an article this morning about how the state of California had decided to start using an ACEs screening question uh, at, at a child's physical every single year. And that raised a lot of ire because the thought is from a lot of us that Screening for that this routinely with parents who come in may prevent parents from coming in because they don't want, you know, DCF or whomever to get involved. ACEs was not meant to be a screening tool. It is a research tool. Yes, some children are going to live in a household, for example, with a caregiver with mental health or substance abuse issues. That doesn't necessarily the, mean the child is experiencing extreme trauma. You know, is it unfortunate? Yes. Um, but there are a lot of parents who, you know, think about a family where one parent is 
healthy and the other parent has bipolar disorder. You know, that bipolar disorder may occasionally have flare-ups, but does that mean the child is at risk? And the answer in most cases is no. And we don't want to um, start making unwarranted referrals just because somebody checked a block that, yes, somebody in the in the household has a mental health issue. A lot of parents felt very um, uh, violated by that. But anyway, I digress. Uh, caregivers with a mental health or substance abuse issue can create a situation in which uh, there is trauma, in which the caregiver is less able to respond to the child's needs, which are increased when the child is stressed, when the family is homeless. It's, you know, they kind of feed on each other. And sometimes during homelessness or as a result of homelessness, the child is separated from the caregiver. A caregiver may go to jail um, for whatever reason. A caregiver may die or may be hospitalized for physical or mental health issues. We know that physical and mental health is usually not good in uh, in in the population who is that is homeless. You know, they they are much more susceptible to things like sepsis and viruses and colds and pneumonia, bronchitis that can require hospitalization and separation from caregiver due to foster care. You know, which is the lesser of two evils, you know, keeping a family together that may be homeless or yanking a child out of a loving family and putting them in foster care so the child is in a sheltered environment. I can't make that call. You know, I think every case is going to be different, but we do need to recognize the impact of homelessness on children and families and and really look at, okay, our Knee-jerk reaction may be to do this, but is that actually in the best interest of the child? How does homelessness trigger that good old HPA axis? Now, remember, the HPA axis is our stress response system, our threat response system. When people are homeless, a lot of times there are concerns about their safety. If they're living in a shelter, they, you know, obviously have a roof over their head and potentially, you know, somebody's up monitoring the shelter 24 hours a day. But living in an environment with a whole bunch of strangers may make them fear for their safety. Living in an environment, especially now in the era of pandemics, um, may make people fear for their physical health being cooped up or cramped up with a whole bunch of strangers. Um, there are a lot of safety issues for children, especially, you know, they may be concerned about not only their safety, but the safety of their caregivers. Remember with children, when they're, if their caregivers, you know, something happens to them, children can't fend for themselves. So it is really threatening. It's really anxiety provoking when there is any threat losing a, a caregiver. Lack of quality sleep. Triggers the HPA axis, whether you are six months or 60 years old. Uh, lack of quality sleep is a problem. People don't sleep well in shelters for the most part. People definitely don't sleep well in their car or in enclaves that are, you know, in the outside, unsheltered. There can be a lot of shame associated with homelessness, not only for the caregivers, but for the little child who has to go to school and they haven't been able to bathe in three days or they haven't had any food. They're living in their car. They see all their friends and their friends are talking about their houses, their trips and their this. And, you know, little Julie over here is just 
you know, going from home to to wherever the car is parked. Guilt. Guilt is more prominent in adults. You know, adults feel a lot of guilt if they become homeless and their 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 family becomes homeless because, you know, we take on the responsibility of caring for our our spawn. And uh, so guilt can be a significant issue for families. Well, how does that impact kiddos? Again, guilt goes up, anxiety goes up, depression goes up in caregivers, behavioral health issues and distress tends to go up, and HPA axis activation goes up in youth. When HPA axis is activated, that's when you start seeing those mental health symptoms. Anger, depression, there are a lot of, there's a lot of frustration and anger is part of that fight or flee. Remember anger and anxiety and depression is that sense of hopelessness and helplessness. A child who does, you know, especially as they get older, who, you know, recognizes the differences between themselves and their, their cohort, a, a family who is, doesn't seem to be able to catch a break, a child who feels stuck in a situation or parents, caregivers who feel stuck in a situation can trigger that HPA axis, that threat response system, that stress response. And eventually the body just says, I give up. I don't have any more energy to give. Poor nutrition, we know, triggers the HPA axis in and of itself. And a lot of people who are homeless do not get adequate quality regular nutrition. And then trauma. And that is such an all-encompassing term. But when people are traumatized, when they're scared, when they are, maybe it triggers prior traumas, maybe they left an abusive situation and then they're in a in an enclave where they see abuse happening, you know, it can trigger trauma memories. So what do we do for assessment? And here's a happy little acronym or mnemonic device that you can use. It's home basis. When we're working with homeless people, we are really, you know, a lot of times it's not the time to get down and start thinking you're going to do an in-depth biopsychosocial assessment. We are trying to connect with them. So let's talk with them about their homelessness history. How long have you been homeless? What caused it? You know, what is keeping you homeless? What are their opinions and motivations? What is, what do they want? Do they want to find safe, stable housing? What is it that is their proximal goal? We don't want to look six months down the road or a year down the road, uh, necessarily yet, unless they want to, but let's see if we can help them figure out, you know, what would help them right now? What is their motivation? What, what are they most motivated to change or do? We do want to do a brief mental health and substance use history. This is mainly so we can identify resources for people. If they have a history of mental illness, they may qualify for SSDI. They may qualify for residential treatment or or something else that, and if they want it, doesn't mean they have to have it. But if we don't screen for it, we can't make those resources available. We want to know about their education and employment history. It's a little, you're, the steps you're going to take to help someone become financially independent and have a safe, stable home are going to be a little bit different if you're working with somebody who cannot read or write and didn't get past the fourth grade versus somebody who has a college education. And yes, people with college educations do become homeless. Basic needs. Think about Maslow's hierarchy. What do that, does a 
person need to survive? Clothes. You know, if you're wearing the same clothes for six days in a row, you know, that's probably not hygienic to begin with, and it's probably not going to help your mood. And it's going to be hard to get a job if you go into a job interview, for example, with, you know, dirty clothes. So, and, and children need clean clothes for school. So they need clothes. Shelter. You know, that's a no-brainer, but not everybody wants shelter. And this is just, we're going to screen and identify what needs they have that they want to get met. Nutrition, you know, how can we help them get their bellies full? Nobody in this country should ever go hungry, and, but that's a whole different soapbox. Medical care and dental care. We want to make sure that we're helping them address any needs and there, we need to be creative about how we go about this. We're going to talk about some suggestions later and hygiene. People need to be able to bathe and in order to prevent, you know, all kinds of skin ailments and as well as in order to be able to be presentable for that job interview or presentable to go to school and not get ridiculed. We need to make sure people have access to places where they can get cleaned up. We want to assess their aptitudes. What are they good at? What do they like doing? Because you can have a, you know, doctorate in engineering. And if that is just not something you're interested in, then you may, you may not enjoy your job. You know, I don't know. I'm spitballing here, but we want to know what their aptitudes are because that can help, help us steer them in directions of places where they might be able to volunteer, get jobs, get training. Um, what is it that they enjoy doing? What salary or income do they have? Some people who are homeless still have money coming in. They're working a minimum wage job or they're getting a social security check or something, but it's not enough to pay for housing. We want to tap into that and figure out where they are with salary and income and what kinds of services, whether they've already enrolled in SNAP, whether they're, they've already enrolled in TANF and other things that we're going to talk about, or they still have yet to tap that uh, source of funding. Engagement. We want to figure out, we need to assess how engaged they are. If they are not interested, like Jay, the one we talked about uh, earlier, who was in a florid psychotic episode, you know, very paranoid, he was not interested in engaging at all right now. And he was not interested in engaging to get a job and get housing, the stuff that I wanted him to do. I needed to get in his world and engage with him there and figure out what is it that you feel you need and what, in what ways, or what can we mutually engage to accomplish? And then social support. We want to ask people, you know, do they have cousins, nephews, uncles, friends, people that they could potentially, you know, sleep on their couch for a while if they are homeless? What kind of social support do they have? And if they don't have any, you know, that's cool. They don't have any. Like we talked about last week, much of their social support may come from the people with whom they are homeless. If they are staying in shelters, they form friendships. If they are living in enclaves, they often form friendships and often very clear power structures within those. We want to figure out where is your social support and what do you see? What do you want in terms of relationships? When people are on medication, and this is specifically for people who are, well, 
SPMI, severe and persistent mental illness, if they have depression, they're on medication, if they're diabetic or have heart issues. Um, a lot of times people who are homeless have reduced medication compliance. Sometimes because forget, uh, other times because they can't afford it. Um, if it's for someone who can't forget, and this is particularly applicable to people who have a uh, schizophrenia or some other psychotic uh, issue and they're on antipsychotic medications. There are multiple antipsychotics that are available in once a month injectables. So if you know that you've got a client who has difficulty remembering to take their meds, or in the case of one of my clients who would voluntarily not take his medication when he knew he was going to go out and use crack over the weekend. And I'm like, okay, we'll call him Jim Bob. You know, I, I appreciate that you don't want to die, Jim Bob, because, you know, I had approached it saying it's dangerous to do crack and be on this medication at the same time. And he, he said, oh, no, Dr. Snipes, I don't take that. You know, if I know I'm going to go use, I don't take my medication for two or three days. And I'm like, okay, that's a problem too. Um, but, you know, working with them to figure out, you know, why they're not compliant, whether it's side effects or getting or they're doing it, they're discontinuing so they can do something else. Um, we need to look at that in order to figure out the best, help them figure out the best treatment plan. Dehydration, antipsychotics, uh, antidepressants, your SSRIs, your non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, your, you know, ibuprofen and those sorts of things, and your mood stabilizer all contribute to dehydration and can become imbalanced in, in the blood the, the blood levels of these medications can become off if the person is taking them and they're dehydrated. So I want you to think about people who are homeless, especially during the summer when they may be sweating a lot. They may get dehydrated. We used to see a huge spike in uh, crisis stabilization unit admissions over the summer when people's medications would get out of whack, for lack of a better term, uh, because they were out in the heat, they were sweating, and they didn't have ready access to, you know, gallons and gallons of water. Uh, so that's important to pay attention to. And when you drink a lot of water, you know, it's possible that you can drink so much water that you may actually throw things out of whack. So doctors need to be super attentive to people who are taking basically any kind of medication, you know, just to be safe and getting dehydrated. Some medications reduce people's ability to sweat. What does sweat do? It helps our body cool. That is our natural air conditioning, if you want to think about it that way. When people take antipsychotics, SSRIs, or allergy medications, Benadryl, um, you know, over the and even over-the-counter medications, uh, they sometimes have a reduced ability to sweat, which means their body cannot cool itself off in the heat, which increases the risk of heat stroke. We need to educate people who are everybody, but, you know, in this particular presentation, we're talking about people who are homeless. We need to educate them about the dangers and the fact that they need to stay in indoors, ideally, but definitely keep from getting overheated because it can creep up on them quickly. A lot of people who are homeless may spend time in libraries, may spend time in, you know, um, 
stores like like Walmart or somewhere, anywhere they can go just to get out of the heat. It's not that they are up to no good. It's that they are trying to survive. <clears throat> People uh, who have diabetes may find it more difficult to control their diabetes and their insulin levels as their nutrition is all over the place and as their hydration is all over the place. Stress makes it much more difficult to control insulin levels. So homelessness, stress, they kind of go hand in hand. There are a lot of reasons that homelessness makes diabetes much more difficult to control. And finally, a lot of medications, even the ones that don't have to be refrigerated, a lot of medications reduce their effectiveness when exposed heat. Think about if you're living in your car and you're leaving your medication in your car. Um, you know, it's getting exposed to those 150, 200 degree temperatures when you're not in your car. But even people that are living outside, a lot of times medications are supposed to be kept, you know, 75 degrees or under, and you're out there in 104 degree heat. So it can reduce the effectiveness of a variety of different types of medication. We need to know this because we need to provide people, um, resources and alternatives. If, uh, where can they go to get hydrated? How can we ensure that they've got access to those places? Where can we, who can we work with in our community to make sure that people who are homeless have a place where they can go or have places where they can go during extreme weather conditions, whether it is heat or cold, where they can be safe. Uh, for people who are on medication, how can they keep their medications safe? and and keep them as potent as possible and that can be you know maybe giving them some sort of insulating packs outreach tips a lot of people who are homeless are a little bit suspicious if you walk up to them out of the clear blue or you suddenly start showing up at their enclave they're thinking what do you want why are you here and what danger do you pose to me you're an outsider got it so get to know people because guess what they are people before anything else. They're people who happen to be homeless. So get to know each person's personal narrative. They already probably feel disenfranchised, stigmatized, and overlooked. So if you sit down with them, look them in the eyes and say, hey, Tom, you know, tell me about you. Tell me about your history. How did you get here? You know, Talk to them like human beings. Don't immediately go in and sit down with a clipboard and go, okay, let's do this screening here. No, that's not get to know them, get to know them as human beings. The screening can wait till next week or the week after when you show up. It, what you want to do is establish rapport first, identify their goals and wants. You know, if they want to be left the heck alone, then all right. If they have other goals, you know, what are those? Let's, let's put those out there and let me see the ways that I might be able to help you connect with services. Your reputation, your approachability and visibility are the key. It's ideal if the same person or people come back on a regular basis. That doesn't mean the same people can go back every single day or even every single week, but it's important to tell people, for example, if you're the A-team, the A-team comes out on the first Friday of every month and the B-team comes out on the second Friday of every month so they can know when they can expect you.
This is really important because it empowers them to come back. Maybe they form a connection with somebody on the B team and they have difficulty with the people on the A team. They're, they're just not, they're not connecting for some reason. Well, if they know exactly when the B team's going to be there, then they can come back at that point. Use motivational interviewing. This is not a paternalistic approach. We want to make sure that we are empowering people who have been disenfranchised, who feel helpless and hopeless and powerless. So use frames. Remember, frames means feedback. Provide them feedback about what options are out there. And if you're concerned about their condition, you know, provide them objective feedback about what you're seeing, what you're noticing. Put the responsibility for change on their shoulders. You know, when they're ready, they can ask for help. Provide advice and a menu of options. You know, let them know what services, what options, what connections are out there. Provide them a little bit of hope. And this goes a long way. They may not be ready to take that step, but if you provide that menu, it starts piquing their interest, potentially. Um, E, empathize with where they're at. We're not pushing them into anything. We want to empathize with the fact that they may feel overwhelmed already. And, oh my gosh, making a change right now is more than they can even muster the energy to do. All right, let's empathize and let's start talking about what is the next small step that you want to make and how can I facilitate it? Let's not think about the big, you know, the overarching goal. Let's think about what you're doing this week. How can I help? And S stands for self-efficacy. We want to encourage people and let them know that we believe that they can do it. And we're there to help connect them. You know, we're, we're kind of in, in the business of, you know, introducing people, if you will, to different agencies and organizations. We're not going to force them to do anything. We want to empower them to take the next step and let them know that we're going to be supportive. We're going to be there kind of like the wind at their back. And we will be there to try to support them through their change process. So services for children and families. TANF is Temporary Aid to Needy Families. And this is one form of um, public assistance that is available. And it can add on to SNAP. Now, anybody, if they meet the financial qualifications and stuff, can qualify, qualify for SNAP. And for those of you who don't, haven't worked in this field a whole bunch with um, uh, public assistance. SNAP is what we in the olden days used to call food. So uh, people who qualify for SNAP, you know, that can be just about anybody. And that will at least help them get access to nutrition. If there is, if they are in a family, Temporary Aid to Needy Families provides a whole host of really awesome services that people can take advantage of. Um, it is designed to help people get back to work. There's money that can be used to help provide childcare for parents that are, you know, going back to work or going to school so they can get a high wage, high demand job. Um, I don't quote me on this. I'm pretty sure this was one of the brainchilds of Bill Clinton. Um, it may have existed beforehand, but uh, it is... A great program. It's a great add-on. TANF funds are available to pay for mental health and substance abuse treatment. Like I said, child care. You know, it pays for a whole bunch of services that people may need in order to enable them to acquire a high-wage, high-demand job. The caveat is there's a time limit on it. 
you can only get these services, I think it's for 18 months. It's been a long time since I worked with TANF before you have to take a break. So it encourages people to really take advantage of the uh, funding that's available during that period of time. Last time, we did talk about employment and the federal bonding program. People who are homeless are going to be hard to employ or hard to hire um, uh, people. So the federal bonding program is great because it does give employers that assurance that should this person, you know, do something nefarious, that they aren't going to be liable up to, I think it's $100,000. So that is super helpful. You contact your um, local federal bonding program um, coordinator and, you know, just go to the federal bonding program website and you can find information about that. We went through that last week. If you want to refresh some of that information, um, you can. Career One Stops. These are wonderful places because they are available in most locales. You know, you may have to travel to the next bigger city if you live in a really rural area. But people at Career One Stops, when they go there, they can search for jobs. They can get help with resume writing. They can get screened for, you know, job aptitudes. There are a lot of vocational counselors that work at Career One Stops. Their whole goal is to help people who are unemployed figure out how to get employed. And they have, you know, all kinds of screenings and tests and things that people, test batteries that people can take if they want to, in order to identify ideal environments for a career, not just, you know, a six month temporary job. Uh, so career one stops are great places. Scholarships exist. And one of the things that our governor did in Tennessee, and this isn't for everywhere. But if you go to your state's Department of Education to look for state-funded grants and state-funded scholarships, your state may have something similar. But our governor decided to create a scholarship for people who had been separated from college for a period of time, you know, so people who maybe decided to work for a while and now they want to go back to school and they're trying to figure out how am I going to pay for this, um, you can, in Tennessee, those people can apply for this Tennessee Reconnect grant and get two years of college paid so people can get an associate's degree for almost pay. There are some fees and things that go in there. But basically, you have to be a Tennessee resident for one year, file your federal financial student aid application, enroll in one of the um, participating colleges or community colleges and in Tennessee that's pretty much every public institution and maintain a at least a six-hour caseload and a minimum PA so that might be an option for some people even if they're you know homeless they are not stupid they are they are a lot of people who are homeless just need an opportunity and helping them connect with some of these resources may be super beneficial, helping them connect with um, unions and, and um, uh, mentorship programs. That can also work because not everybody is wants to go to college. You know, book learning is not the thing for every single person based on their learning style, their cognitive abilities, those sorts. Social security, disability, and social security uh, are also areas that we need to look at. And there is a resource at the end of this presentation that was written by a uh, legal group about 
exactly what you need to put in the social security disability application to help people with mental health or substance use disorders qualify. And that's the big thing. Social security disability usually gets rejected at least once, if not twice, um, and people have to reapply. If we do it right the first time, then hopefully the person won't have to go through the reapplication process. They don't have three years. You know, they need help now. Medicaid, we want to look if the person, if it's a family then or a child, then they may qualify for Medicaid. And that obviously will help them access a whole ton of medical service. And in order for children to learn and avoid some of these behavioral problems, you know, we need to make sure they're healthy. When my son was little, oh gosh, you know, 18 months before he was talking a lot, whenever he would get an ear infection, uh, he wouldn't complain. He wouldn't pull on his ear. He wouldn't do anything that indicated that I'm in pain. He would become what my what my best friend used to call more disorganized. He would be more scattered, a little bit more oppositional. Um, and that almost inevitably indicated that he was sick. Something was wrong. So, you know, we know that when children are not feeling well, they're probably going to behave differently and oftentimes not the way we want them to. Physical health, base level of Maslow's hierarchy. And there is a lot of support for child care. Parents may say, or caregivers may say, well, you know, I'd love to get out of this situation, but how can I get a job? How can I do these things if, you know, because I've got children, you know, they, they get out of school. What am I supposed to do with them, you know, between 2.30 when they get out of school and p.m. when I get out of work? Well, there is subsidized child care and all of these things you can find on the internet. But these are services that we can let them know are available. As always, if you call your local United Way 211, they are probably going to be able to give you all of these resources as well. But just in case they, they don't, um, you do have those. Creative interventions. These are some things that I've seen really work. And it's a matter of evaluating the willingness of your community to make these things happen. Interfaith Hospitality Network. Uh, this is where a bunch of, uh, in, in Central Florida, where I was from, a bunch of churches got together. It doesn't have to be church, just churches. It can be, you know, community centers and churches and, you know, whatever else. But organizations that have a big room, like a, you know, some sort of community room, and ideally a kitchen where families can come, they can sleep. And generally with the Interfaith Network, they rotated. So every week or two weeks, they would switch and they, the families would stay at a different location. So the onus was not always on one particular church. And But during that one or two week period, you know, their uh, recreation areas were, were generally um, being used by people who are homeless. So, uh, Interfaith Hospitality Network, and if you look online for Interfaith Hospitality Network, you will see a variety of different approaches, what different um, organizations have bound together and done in their communities, you know, from California to Colorado to Florida. There are tons of different ideas. Uh, a lot of times, these Interfaith Hospitality Networks provide dinner and an overnight 
place for people to shelter so that so they have they that sorry so they do have shelter other times or in addition it also might be a place where people can access food water and um, toiletries sometimes in the interfaith network people from a particular um, organization will get together and go out to an encampment like every Friday at three o'clock and they will deliver uh, food, water, and toiletries that were donated by the congregation. Truck stops and other places where people can shower. Now, a lot of times there's a fee for this. Sometimes the you can get donations for it. Sometimes you can get um, even the uh, 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 county county commission to chip in a little bit because their goal is to help these people get employed and safe, stable housing, you know, and not be homeless in their communities. So you can kind of spin it with county commission this way. Let's help help these people along. Let's give them a hand up. Community gardens. If you live in a place that's more rural, community gardens can be a great place where people can, um, you know, work a little bit and grow their own food, which can help with the nutrition. Sanitation stations, um, you know, having a, especially in encampments, having a porta potty and then having a place where people can wash up. They can wash their hands. They can wash their, the dishes, whatever that they ate with that night um, in order to prevent some really easily preventable illnesses. Shelter supported, and this is animal shelter supported, flea, tick, and heartworm prevention, and spay-neuter services. Most communities have free or very low-cost um, spay and neuter services that are available. As we talked about last time, a lot of people who are homeless who have pets, those pets are family. Those pets serve a purpose and are oftentimes emotional support animals. They also do need food and health care themselves. So a lot of shelters will get donations and be able to help um, the animals in these encampments and, and people who are homeless help them get flea, tick, and heartworm prevention. Free mobile clinics, especially those that are in like RVs, staffed by volunteer professionals. In some cases, uh, the state agrees to provide CEU compensation. So if you go and volunteer, you know, four hours, then we will provide you, you know, eight hours of free CEUs or something. You know, it's not going to be super equitable. Part of what you're doing is putting stuff into the karma bank. But some states have done that. A lot of um, attorney boards have done that to encourage attorneys to do some pro bono legal services. Residential treatment and level three recovery houses that accept children can be a great option for families or even people who are um, homeless and may have issues that can be addressed in residential treatment. Homelessness can happen to anyone given the right circumstances. People who are homeless have more difficulty getting their basic needs met, which increases the risk of physical and mental health issues. Children who are homeless, even if they're doubling up, experience much higher rates of stress and often less school stability. Adverse childhood experiences contribute to developmental delays and medical and mental health issues. Anybody can become homeless, 
And there are a lot of things that we can do to give a hand up. Most people who are homeless really want to be able to get that safe, stable housing, but they just can't even begin to fathom the first steps to make that happen. They are so overwhelmed. And that's where we can come in. Are there any questions? I wanted to get through that before I went here, but I did mention level three recovery residences. And these are, you know, houses where people stay. They're not treatment centers, but level three provides a variety of um, uh, life skill development, some clinical services provided by an outside provider. There are some options out there for people who may uh, benefit. The nice thing about level three is if the person is on Medicaid or Medicare, a lot of times Medicaid or Medicare, even TANF in some cases, may pay for their uh, stay in the housing. So that's something to check with your local regulations. All right, everybody, have a great weekend, and I look forward to seeing you on Tuesday. If this podcast helps you help your clients or yourself, please support us by purchasing your CEUs at allceus.com or getting your agency to sponsor an episode. A direct link to the on-demand CEUs for this podcast is at allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. That's allceus.com slash podcast CEUs. To sponsor an episode of Counselor Toolbox and reach over 50,000 clinicians per week, go to allceus.com slash sponsor. Thank you.